Remain standing for our Old Testament lesson, which is also our sermon text, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Thus far, the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your law. We pray that as we meditate upon it today, that you would show us your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would be like him. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. To Psalm 1, and we're going to consider both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together today. Taken together, the first and second Psalms present the themes which reoccur frequently throughout the Psalter, and they, they form a kind of preamble to the whole book. They give the ground and theology for the whole book of Psalms. And a key theme of Psalm 1, and indeed much of the rest of the scriptures, is that this idea that there's two ways, there's two paths in life. There's the way, the path, as Psalm 1 begins, of the blessed man, which involves devotion to the Lord and delighting in his law or his teaching. Conversely, there's the way that is not in keeping with the Lord's teaching. And that path, that way, leads to judgment, while The way of delighting in the Lord leads to blessing. And the second psalm takes this theme. In in Hebrew poetry, many of you know, love parallelisms. They love to say one thing and then restate it again. And this is going on in the book of Psalms. With the first psalm and the second psalm, this theme is just being restated. And here it's amplified. It takes that same theme of the two ways and amplifies it to a national and a cosmic scale. It's a poem that reflects on the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 of the coming messianic king who would rule over all the nations in the everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And it concludes by pronouncing a blessing on all those who put their trust in that coming king. So you see that word blessed or blessing, happy, begins Psalm 1 and ends Psalm 2, and it connects, it links them together into one unit. Blessed is the man, begins Psalm 1, and blessed are those who put their trust in him, ends Psalm 2. But there are many other connections between these two poems. In each of the poems, each of the Psalms, the wicked take counsel together. Both of the poems refer to the way that perishes, and the Hebrew word 
mutter or meditate or plot, as it's translated in Psalm 2, forms a, a central piece to both of them. And then there are other connections that we'll see as we move through them together today. But what I want to suggest to you is that the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the promised Davidic, the promised Messianic king in Psalm 2. And that the message together of Psalm 1 and 2 is that all who trust in this anointed king will be blessed as they find themselves in him, as they live the way that he lived, as they think what he thinks about, and as they view the world the way that he does. So let's, let's look together at this description of the blessed man beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 1. It says, blessed is this man. That word blessed describes being merry or happy. It's, it's a deep gladness. In fact, in Hebrew, the word blessed there is in the plural, while the word man is in the singular. So it's this superlative. Um, we might even say that this man is under the blessednesses of God. It's a supremely blessed man. And we are told that this superlatively blessed man doesn't do some things and that he does other things. Look at Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The blessed man does not do these things. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly is used to describe a habitual way of life. The one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly is someone who doesn't live their life according to worldly advice, we might say, or ungodly principles. In a certain way, the blessed man is unfamiliar with the way of sinners. He doesn't know their paths. He doesn't know their ways in order to stand there with him. And he doesn't sit, as the world does, in mockery or scorn of God's ways. The, the ungodly man doesn't do these things. What, what then is the counsel of the ungodly? What does it mean to live by worldly advice or ungodly principles? Well, we get a few more details of that if you just move your eyes down to Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. They say, why, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. You see that we had the same word. There's the counsel of the ungodly in Psalm 1, and there, there are the rulers of the earth taking counsel together in Psalm 2. And what, what is the content of their counsel? The ungodly see God's instruction and Christ's rule as strictures. They're like cords or fetters to them. The ungodly are like Adam and Eve in the garden, listening to the serpent and attempting to have autonomous rule themselves. The counsel of the ungodly, the counsel of the rulers of this world, is this, that 
God does not rule. God is not king. And his anointed, his king, the one that he said would rule, he's not going to rule over us either. We ourselves will have autonomous rule. Of course, it's easy to think of any number of ways that we as a people, as a nation, mock God's instruction, God's ways, that we scorn the way that he tells us to live. We could think of any number of acceptance of sexual perversions or the the murdering of the unborn, the abortion that happens regularly every day in our country. And that's true, and those those are big and highlighted ways that we take counsel against the Lord, the way that we try to throw off his instruction and his way of living. But we also need to remember that there's worldly advice and ungodly counsel that is a lot more like the advice from the respectable Mr. Worldly Wiseman in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, at least the version with Worldly Wiseman, you remember that he's someone that the protagonist Christian meets early on in his journey as he's trying to make it to the narrow gate. He's trying to make it to the cross. And the worldly wise man meets him and tries to dissuade him from going to the cross, from going to the narrow gate, because that way is going to have a lot of danger and a lot of toil and perhaps might even end up in his death. The worldly wise man seeks to blunt the force of God's commands in the Christian's life, but he wants to do it in a way that is respectable, in a way that is moral. We're hearing the voice of the counsel of the ungodly any time that we are told that we need to set aside God's commands. When, when you hear the voice in your head that says things like, you know, do I really have to forgive him? I mean, I know God says to forgive, but man, that was just an outrageous sin. Do, we, do I really need to forgive? Do I really need to let that go? Or... Um, Perhaps you might think things like, I know God says to be generous, and I'm, I'm willing to give and be generous, but surely I need to look out for myself first. No, any, any seeking of, of hoping to set aside God's commands, to live without um, His bonds, as it says in, in Psalm 2, is the counsel of the ungodly. And there is a true, there's a real fellowship with the ungodly, whether of the more high-handed, debauched kind or the more respectable, quiet kind that should just not be possible for Christians. The fellowship of the wicked is built upon their mutual love of wickedness. And so to try to have fellowship or friendship with the world, but not to love what they love, is an impossibility. Like Amos says in Amos chapter 3, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? How can you walk in the counsel of the ungodly unless you agree that it's good counsel, that these are the principles we ought to live by? How can you stand with sinners if you don't love the things that they love? How can you sit with the scornful if you are not prepared to mock and scorn God's word as they are? The way that leads to destruction, Jesus told us, is broad. And there are many 
who go to eternity by it. But for all of that, the counsel of the wicked and the path of sinners and the seat of the scornful is enticing, and it has great appeal even for Christians. The Psalms would not warn us of the danger of listening to the ungodly's counsel if it weren't enticing for us. And you need to be aware that what you give your attention to will form you. That what you give your attention to will begin to determine what you love. It's a cycle that works that way. What you love, you attend to. And then what you attend to, in turn, shapes what you love. And so if, if we are continually putting worldly principles in front of ourselves, we will find ourselves on the path of sinners and eventually sitting in the seat of the scornful, mocking God's law and God's way. The blessed man, Psalm 1 says, does not do that. Converse, uh, um, instead, what he does is he delights in God's law. Look at Psalm 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So the word law there is Torah, which has a broader meaning than a simple commandment, like our laws, like, like the speed limit or something like that. It has the sense of teaching or instruction. Torah en- encompasses all of God's promises, all of His commandments, all of His prohibitions, all of His testimonies, His stories, His works of redemption. Really, Torah encompasses all of Scripture. The original hearers, the original singers of the Psalms would have heard the word Torah and thought of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Um, But eventually that word widened out to, to mean all of God's Scriptures. And it's no accident that the Psalms themselves are divided into five books. The Psalter presents itself as Scripture to be meditated on, a little um, Bible in miniature, as Luther put it. So we could say then that the blessed man is someone who delights in the teaching of the Lord, or on his teaching, on his Scriptures, he meditates day and night. And meditate here could be rendered mutter. There's a, a repeating something under your breath continually idea to it. The law of the Lord is sweet. It is like honey to the blessed man's taste. He turns it over in his mouth like a peppermint. Meditating is the idea of going about your day muttering the scriptures that you know to yourself. Considering the details, rehearsing the promises, remembering the stories and the commandments and treasuring them up in your heart so that you may understand them with your heart and do them. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, the author Michael Reeves says this, quote, We cannot choose what we love, but always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin in the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. End quote. Of course, we 
see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, primarily in His law, in His scriptures, in recounting the mighty acts of God and the salvation of His people. And that presents us with the question, what is getting your attention? In the sheer amount of time, what do you place before yourself? What do you think about in your unguarded moments, when you have a few moments in between things at work, or while you're waiting for an appointment? What, what comes to mind then? Is it, is it the news? Is it social media? Is it an argument that you had with a friend or someone in your family? What, what comes to mind in your unguarded moments? I want to encourage you all to begin, if you don't already, to meditate, to repeat daily to yourselves the Scriptures, God's law. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to take a portion of your Bible reading and turn it into a prayer. And that will force you to go back over what you've read line by line and think about it. And it, and it gives you the opportunity to pray in light of God's Word. And you might even take that prayer and memorize it. And then repeat it to yourself later in that day. Or take the verse that you prayed and memorize it and repeat it to yourself later in the day. And the Psalms are a great place to begin to do that because they themselves are prayers. They are God's prayers for us. God's words in us. So I want to encourage you all to take, take the Psalms or take any portion of your Bible reading. Pick a small part of it and, and pray in light of it. Memorize that. Repeat it to yourself throughout the day. One commentator on this passage said this, quote, memorized in chunks, the Psalms can provide a ready response to the pressing realities of our days. When I've wakened in a panic in the darkness of early morning hours submerged in fear or self-pity or self-doubt, the Psalms have often provided the assurance that my anxieties are known by God. So I encourage you to make the Psalms your constant companion. Keep their words in your mind and heart and on your lips as you meet the challenges of your days and nights. End quote. I want to encourage you to do just that. Keep the Psalms, keep Scripture on your mind and on your heart. Turn them into prayers, memorize them, pray them. And, and we have many wonderful musical versions of the Psalms even in our, in our hymnal. You can memorize those, you can sing them to yourselves as you're doing the dishes or mowing the lawn or or going about your day. What's the outcome? If we, if we do this, if we were like the blessed man, what's the outcome of this? We see it in verse 3. Psalm 1 verse 3 says this, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The result of this meditating is that the blessed man becomes like the trees in the Garden of Eden, planted by rivers of water. And he is very fruitful because he's enjoying the presence of God. In this case, the presence of God through his unceasing meditation on God's instruction. Sustained by strong roots and constant supply of nourishment, he is the epitome of spiritual vitality. And that this state of blessedness and fruitfulness is attributed to a singular man 
Notice that he is singular there in verse 3. And in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man, Psalm 1. And then in verse 3, he shall be like a tree. This is what leads me to see that Christ is the true blessed man. Christ epitomized Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. He rose early in the morning and was late at night to pray and to meditate on God's word, to draw away and to memorize God's instruction. He is the true vine who bears good fruit and the fruitful grain of wheat. He's the one in whom all the purposes of the Lord prospers, especially as he laid down his life in his death and burial and resurrection. As it says in Isaiah 53, verse 10, When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus is the true and the ultimate blessed man. He is the true fruitful vine. Now, if we were to to simply just read those first three verses, detached from the rest of the Bible, detached from the rest of the Psalms, we might come away with a health and wealth sort of interpretation. But if we understand Christ as the blessed man, it gives us perspective on what it really means to live the good life. What it really means to live a life that is fruitful, one that prospers. All that he does, it says, shall prosper. What are, what are things that Christ did that prospered? His preaching, his miracles, his teaching. But also being turned over to the authorities, being flogged, being whipped, and dying. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, prospered God's purposes more than any other part of his ministry in his life. His death, as he said, it was more fruitful than his ministry in his time of his incarnation. And this teaches us the wisdom that we need to understand Jesus' beatitudes, how someone can be blessed, how they can be merry, happy, living under the deep gladness and prosperity of God, even when they mourn or are poor in spirit or mocked and reviled. When we look at Jesus, we see that blessedness, the permanence that God promises, is ultimately fulfilled, yes, in this life, in some token, form, and fashion, but ultimately in the resurrection. We can understand Romans 8 when Paul says that all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. The fruitful life, the blessed life, is one in which God's purposes prosper in that person's life. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. And this also explains the shift to the plural at the end of the Psalms. Look at uh, Psalm 1-5 and Psalm 2-12. In Psalm 1-5, we find a reference to the congregation of the righteous. Even though Psalm 1 began with a blessed man, it ends with a congregation of the righteous. And in 2.12, it says, Blessed are all those, plural, who put their trust in Him. That is the congregation, the assembly, literally the church of the righteous in Psalm 1.5. As we place our faith and our trust in Christ and do as the blessed man did, meditating on God's instructions, then we too bear fruit for God.
We live lives that have the fruit of the Spirit. We live lives that have joy and peace and love and kindness. And we look forward to the ultimate consummation of our blessedness in the resurrection. The outcome of the ungodly, however, is very different. We see that in Psalm 1, verses 4 and 5. Look there, it says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. While the blessed man has been meditating on God's instruction, the wicked... It says, have been meditating also. In Psalm 2, verse 1, it says they're plotting. It's the same word. They're meditating on how to throw off the Lord, how to throw off His Christ. But never forget that the way of sin is empty. The counsel of the ungodly, the way of sin, is taking the wrong road and hoping to get home eventually. The plotting of the wicked is ultimately out of touch with reality. We are not our own sovereigns. We are not our own lawgivers because we haven't made ourselves. God is the one who made us. Sin is futile, and therefore it is fruitless. Accordingly, that is why the wicked are accounted as chaff and blown away in the judgment in Psalm 1, verse 4. Likening the ungodly to chaff, shows the light and ephemeral nature of the wicked in their plots, whatever vain imaginings they might have. John the Baptist in the Gospels perhaps had these psalms in mind as he contrasted the figure of the chaff with fruitful trees in order to spur people onto faith and repentance, saying in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He pointed forward to the Lord's Messiah, who will smash the rebellious kingdoms of the earth to dust in Psalm 2, verse 9. This king is like the righteous and wise king of Proverbs 20, which says, A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. This is the outcome of the way of sinners. This is the outcome of the ungodly counsels. This is the outcome of living your life according to worldly principles. But it doesn't always seem that way, does it? Every day when you turn on the news or scroll through your feed on your phone, it seems like the way of the ungodly will not perish, but continues to get stronger every day. But this is not true. The most rebellious and sturdiest evils that you see today, that you see every day, have all the strength of dandelion fuzz. All right, the dandelions are coming up in our yard and we're enjoying kicking them around the yard and watching fuzz blow away in the wind. 
the sturdiest evils that you see day in and day out on the news are dandelion fuzz, destined to be blown away and forgotten. This means that you need not be anxious when you watch the news every day. This means that you need not fret about evildoers when you see the latest atrocity on Facebook or on the news. You need not worry, but there is something you should do, and that is pray. We should pray. The cosmic view of Psalm 1 and 2 gives us the basis for faithful pleading with God. We need to learn to pray with God's promises and this final judgment in mind. We need to learn to pray things like, Lord, I know you have promised that the righteous will flourish and that you will remove all sin and wickedness from the earth, but it doesn't seem as if that is happening now. So please, Lord, encourage our hearts and give us a token of your judgment and give us faith and perseverance to persevere to the end. The Psalms are a book of prayers. And if we could widen out the context a little bit and and read Psalms 3 through 13, one of the things you'll notice is right after Psalm 1 and 2, where we see the righteous exalted and the wicked judged, there are all these Psalms where the psalmist is pleading for God to set the world to rights. It's not as if we get to the end of Psalm 2 and everything is fine. In Psalm 3, the psalmist takes this promise and he begins to plead with God on the basis of it. Psalm 1 and 2 constitute a promise from God to you about the righteous reign of Jesus Christ and an invitation from Him to plead with Him on the basis of that promise. But never forget that the ultimate horizon of that promise of these psalms is the final judgment. We plead with God to make good on Psalm 1 and 2, but we must have patience to persevere knowing what the ultimate horizon is. The Lord Jesus Himself commanded us to pray with steadfast purpose in this horizon in mind in Luke 18, verse 7, when He said, And shall not God avenge His own elect, who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on earth? As you pray, does God, does God find you a faithful prayer? Someone who takes His promises and with patience and perseverance, like the persistent widow, come to Him again and again. So, also, if you are here today and you have been walking in the counsel of the ungodly, if you've been living without reference to Christ, or if you've found yourself enticed by worldly principles, even the more respectable-seeming ones. You need to look to the end and see where that path leads. You need to see that the chaff is blown away and the rebellious nations are shattered. And you need to put your faith in Christ and be blessed. It is a tragedy that someone would trade the permanent blessedness that they may have with God in order to walk 
with the chaff. Which brings us finally to God's teaching or his instruction in Psalm 1, verse 6, and Psalm 2, 10 through 12. 10 through 12 says this, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. I began by referencing the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Let me, let me read that promise to you now. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. 2 Samuel 7, 12-14 says, This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. This future son, referenced in the second psalm, Psalm 2, Today you are my son. This future king, was, of course, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. As the apostles plainly preached and proved from the Scriptures, saying that Jesus was, as we read in chapter 1 of Romans, born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, the King whose kingdom and throne is established forever. More than anything, this certainly is the Lord's instruction. It is His Torah that we are to meditate on day and night. The Lord's Messiah, Jesus Christ, will reign, and He is reigning, and the end of the wicked is to be judged eternally. This is the truth we are to take and mutter to ourselves, the truth we are to take and remember, the truth we are to take and meditate on day and night. In a way, we are all living in between verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2. Ask of me, it says in Psalm, eight, or Psalm 2, verse 8, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This has happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is happening as people from every tribe and tongue and nation come to the Lord. But we also know that verse 9 will also happen. He, Jesus, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with a potter's, like a potter's vessel. And so what are we to do in between verses 8 and 9? How are we to live? Meditate on God's law. Do as the blessed man did. And tell everyone, Psalm 2 Verses 10 through 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. This is the message for kings. This is the message for nations. This is the message for your neighbors. It is the message for yourself. Remember it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. And live it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Psalms, your prayers in us and through us, to us and to you. We pray that you would give us grace to remember them 
and to meditate on them, to pray them faithfully to you, and to look forward to the coming of your Son and our King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.